update. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your providence. You are leading the congregation to uh, elect this committee, uh, for the energy that uh, you are giving them. Uh, Would you encourage them and strengthen them, give them uh, discernment uh, as they uh, sharpen their process and as they start uh, down the road a bit interacting with applicants. We thank you that we can trust you. And we trust you this morning, too, to illumine your word. We ask that you would dig out our ears. Sometimes they get stopped up. Give us the ears of disciples, hearts to hear, hearts to love you and love our neighbors. We ask this in the amazing name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our series is The True Grace of God, Book of First Peter. And our topic for this morning uh, is a phrase out of our text in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. Uh, we'll be talking about what that gracious thing that Peter is speaking about. Follow along as uh, I read uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And I don't know if you've done this in the past. Uh, I forgot to ask. Uh, I won't ask now. I'll just ask you to do it. Would you stand as we read God's word to honor it and to honor him? The Lord's apostle, Peter, writes, Servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was a deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please.
from 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through verse 12 of chapter 3, um, Peter is pointing to how and to why Christ followers uh, are to relate to neighbors regardless of authority and the behavior of that authority and regardless of social standing. And that will be our focus as we go through these sections. Peter's admonitions flow from who believers are and from our need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He lists a number of contexts in which God's servants, 2.16, who are aliens and exiles in the view of the locals around them, um, are always having our actions, our behavior scrutinized. Uh, let me give you just uh, some very quick background from uh, a wonderful commentary by Karen Jobes. Uh, she notes that Plato taught that each person in the household, and the word for servants here is the Greek word for household servants, and a household is a little bigger than we think of households sometimes, but it is a household. He t Plato taught that each person in the household has a place under the man's authority. The child, the woman, and the slave are each to submit in different ways to the man's authority and are not to aspire to the roles of another, Plato's Republic. Uh, she notes the acceptance of one's station in life is fundamental to right household management, which, as Aristotle wrote, quote, demands in the first place familiarity with the sphere of one's actions, uh, end quote. In other words, having, in other words, behaving in the manner appropriate to one's own Role. So some have called uh, these lists that were existent in the philosophies and the moral teaching of the day. We're trying to understand the culture. Uh, they called them uh, household lists, but uh, Job suggests, uh, quoting someone else, that maybe they're station codes, stations in life, uh, how we have to deal with things. Now, we may not like the Greco Roman culture of that day. But if we're honest and look around in every country in the world, there are existing formal or informal station codes. And when we don't follow those things exactly the way uh, the majority around us want, uh, we're scrutinized. And people wonder, what's wrong with them? Are they strangers to, to how we do things? Uh, that kind of human behavior doesn't easily, quickly change. And Peter's not approving of all of it. But he is noting that because of the importance of these relationships for social stability, religions that were introduced into the empire by foreigners were judged in large part by whether or not they complied with the expectations in those household social stations. And so the Christians were, in the Roman, Greco-Roman culture, uh, uh, you know, when you're a stranger, you get looked at real carefully. Uh, people notice you when you're different, and they want to know how your differences are affecting them. And for some who took uh, the Roman religions, and, and a lot of people took it seriously on one level or another, if the Christians wouldn't worship the Roman gods and even the emperor, they might bring the wrath of the gods on the people, and then everybody gets hurt. So Christians are not good for the common good, were some of the ideas that were flying around. That is enough background. Our task from uh, that is to realize, as I said, it's still true. There are different cultures and different times, but uh, I remind us as Peter's dealing with servants in this realm that in a global culture, which a lot of people want it to be more global, 
Uh, we have uh, the wealthy and the powerful supporting directly and indirectly human trafficking, a type of slavery, on a scale numerically that the world has never seen. So we can't think in narrow pockets. We've got to look at what affects all of us and what affects every nation, including our own. So our task as we walk through this list, we dealt with part of it last week, uh, is to learn to live fearing God, people says, and modeling Jesus in each of these settings. Can't take much time. It's on the printed outline. In chapter 2, we have what we looked at last week, human institutions, emperors, governors, fellow believers. Peter says everyone. In our text, if we are servants, Chapter 3, if we are wives, our behavior towards our husbands, what's expected in the culture. Chapter 3, verse 7, if we are husbands, our behavior towards our wives. And chapter 3, verses 8 and following, finally, all of us, a summary behavior based on our calling and the blessings to which we belong. So let's dig into our text, uh, verses 18 to 20 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But when, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So I want to suggest that the true grace of God that the whole book talks about is displayed when we suffer for doing good, real good, what God says is good, when we suffer for that and embrace it with endurance and deep joy in Christ. Peter is saying, this is a gracious thing. And this can help outsiders see the true grace of God. We are not simply to offend because of thoughtless zeal for the gospel. I don't want to think about if and when I might have done that. I had a friend who... uh, was sitting in the Nashville, Nashville Railroad Station in the late 60s, and a lady walked by and handed him a tract and said, here's your tract, son, you've been saved? And with a smile, he said, yes, I have, ma'am. She said, then pass it on to somebody else. Oh, she showed great joy in Jesus. We're not thoughtlessly to offend or to seek suffering, or the early church got to the place when persecution got really bad that people got in small areas into martyr complexes where they thought it was such an honor to be martyred for Jesus, they kind of went out of their way, a few of us, uh, to get themselves martyred as if somehow they would earn special honor. I don't think that's a fair reading of uh, any of the Scripture. But we are to seek common ground and the common good when able to do it still honoring Christ but willing to risk dishonor and shame in order to be faithful. Some students of the passage have seen a link in Peter's thought regarding the public good, doing public good, so you'll be thought well of, have tied it to Jeremiah's words when Israelite exiles were in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the city, where God says, I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Uh, Even though we're exiles and aliens, we are to seek the good of our cities. And I'll say a little more later, I think it's the city you live in that you ought to be most concerned about. Instead of all the cities that uh, 
the media are trying to get you to be concerned about. Uh, local is the most important. Peter knows that critical accusations and stereotypes, uh, some of the labels that are being used, and he urges his readers to seek the public good and Christ's ultimate good at the same time if possible. And when in verse 17 of chapter 1, Peter had said, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's de deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, he's really saying both God and your neighbors are watching you. And you can fear God without being afraid, but you ought to know that your father is observing you and encouraging you and prodding you and rebuking you by his word if you are in his word and are praying and leaning on him. He's encouraging you to live at peace with all and to be thought well of if you can. And one uh, area, interestingly, and we need to understand, uh, I think this is one of the things that I've been struck with more in recent months than before. I'm a little slow sometimes that, uh, you know, that one of the strategies of the media is very simple. They want you to watch. So they're going to stir you up and make you want to watch, and they're, they're going to want to get you to buy into their message, and pretty soon it becomes the message, even though it's not totally true. Maybe totally is uh, uh, not totally true. I mean, that's always true that secular things, uh, things apart from God's Word, are, are never totally true. But we get the idea that everybody's thinking what the media says they're thinking. One of the wonderful things about dealing with the people around the, in the community, I'm talking about non-believers, is you find out they don't all agree. They agree and disagree with the media as much as they disagree with you as a Christian if they're not a Christian on some things, but maybe not on others. And I think one of the things that Peter's urging us to is to think about not the disagreements with your neighbors as much as the agreements. And one of the wonderful things in Greek uh, and Roman social philosophy is they really did, uh, especially uh, the Romans, but a lot of the Greek philosophers, discipline. When Peter says, uh, abstain from fleshly desires, a lot of Greek philosophers would have said, amen, preach it. All kinds of trouble happens to society when your passions are in, get in the way. Passions, not just for sexual things, which we've been falsely trained by the world and sometimes the church to think, think are the only kind of passions that uh, uh, are, are trouble. No, it's passions for power. It's passions uh, that I've got to be liked uh, by any cost. It's all of these things that get you to look at yourself in ways other than how God sees you and how the gospel sees you. So there are a lot of things, and we'll talk more about them in chapter 3, where there are people, and there are people today, that are beginning to see the results of the unrestrained self-indulgence uh, and desires. Uh, we need to be talking to our neighbors uh, with common ground about those things. Uh, so how wonderful that many in Peter's day and ours still see self-control as a good thing. While the public culture, the voices, uh, the talking heads flaunt absolute individual freedom as the goal, Many individuals are seeing in their own or loved ones' lives that it doesn't work very well. Last week, somebody asked me to say more about what it means to honor someone, to honor everyone. Uh, I want to make this really quick. Uh, 
We have it online if you need to write down the list. I've got to get going fast to get where I want us to get this morning. Uh, but some of what it means is to appreciate and give thanks for your neighbor's worth and their value as beings made in God's image. Another way is to honor or point out aspects like of their character, like faithfulness, other godly attributes. Tell others that you appreciate them. Uh, I know people that have seen some remarkable things happen when uh, they had parents uh, who were really hard to deal with, and they started in small ways, in their presence and to others, talking about how they'd been thinking about how many thousands of hours their parents gave of their lives to taking care of them, from changing diapers to nursing and feeding in the middle of the night to comforting when uh, the night scares came. I mean, there's always something good, almost always, that you can say about anybody. Uh, I had a guy that did prayer conferences that I loved his statement. Uh, he would say to people, uh, you remind me of God. You've been so faithful to your family. You've been so faithful to your husband. And I know him. He's not always easy to be around. There are ways to build bonds with people. Another way of expressing what it means to honor is instead of responding uh, to the media's culture with Borg, their Borg-like, and if you don't know the Borgs, uh, ask somebody that loves Star Wars. Uh, they said, resistance is futile. You have to cave in. You have to fear being canceled. You've got to cancel back. Do unto others like they do to you. No, you don't. Look for windows that connect. Refuse to cancel your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and refuse to cancel your neighbors when you disagree with them. Look for windows that connect. Uh, because there are many contradictions that exist between the reasons people get excited about a given movement or group that's trying to right some wrongs or correct injustice, and in their view, seek the public good. There are a lot of contradictions between that good desire and the core commitments that want to deconstruct, deconstruct uh, the good and lasting things in our culture, let alone deconstruct anything that points to the eternal. And most people don't live in the deconstruction. They live in the good reasons that they're involved with things. People are attracted because of words supporting what they see is needed for change, for better justice, uh, for more equality. But most of our neighbors af affirm important things that some of those movements and their leaders are out to destroy. And so people are living in tension today. Jerome Bars um, had the privilege of spending a couple of weekends with as we had him, the church I was serving in Tulsa. If you don't know of his ministry, uh, with Francis Schaeffer and Labrie, head of the British work, and, and then at Covenant Seminary for many years now. Uh, Jerem's parents uh, were Marxists in England when he was growing up. His dad was the groundskeeper uh, for a large estate. They lived in a small cottage with paper-thin walls where Jerem heard almost every word his mother or father said to one another, whether they thought he could hear them or not. That's a scary thought as a parent. And after putting his faith in Christ, and that's a wonderful story in and of itself, Jerem uh, had been longing for ways to talk to his parents. And, uh, and one day as he was thinking about what he could affirm, and then it hit him, 
the contradiction with Marxism. He asked his father this. He said, Dad, you know in our small cottage, uh, for my whole life, I don't know if he was in his 20s, I imagine, uh, maybe 30 at this time, I heard almost everything you ever said to Mom. And he said, you have been the most incredible example of what a loving marriage is that I have ever seen. I have never heard you disrespect my mother and your wife. I've got a question I've got to ask you. Given how much you value marriage and how you've demonstrated, how can you support something like Marxism whose worldwide goal is to tear down the family? That's a gigantic contradiction, Dad. How do you deal with it? And I don't know what his dad said, but I think somewhere in his thoughts was, I never thought of that. Wow. And it was like the pebble you put in someone's shoe that they didn't notice you put it there with your words, but as they walk away, they're wondering, you know, what happened? And then they start thinking about what happened. And six months, I think it was, before he died, uh, with Jerem and Francis Schaeffer sharing the gospel, his dad came to Christ. Because he put together attributes that were like godlike in his father's life with a serious question out of deep love. Most people aren't weird like me and like to read intellectual history and understand how and why our society's changing so quickly, and sometimes I like to talk about it a lot. And I've got some of you reading books I've mentioned. That's scary. I need to think more about uh, those books. But I want you to know that local is more important. I mean, we need some people that are weird like me that keep reading intellectual history and understand the background. But Peter's prodding us to see that people were more likely to hear us if we were supportive of them and what they care about wherever we can be. And we are good and care for our neighbors and the public good. We support public projects that are good. And if they hear statements of affirmation and of beauty and appreciation coming out of our mouths often. And where we can in every way is most of all local. Uh, uh, I have a habit, uh, some of my friends call me an equal opportunity offender. Uh, I, I keep trying to say I'm trying to be like Jesus because he did that. And I mentioned last week Ronald Reagan when he was governor of uh, California signing the law and encouraging it for no-fault divorce. And it hasn't turned out very well for California or for the rest of us. And I'm not saying I'm good at evaluating every bill. But, but when, it, when you think about abstaining from faithful passions, you've got to ask yourself, is it really good social posi- uh, policy in a land where everybody's a sinner to give people an excuse for getting out of their marriages when it's hard? I understand. I think he meant it for good. Uh, Now, in case some of you thought that I was assuming all of you like Ronald Reagan, uh, let me be an equal opportunity offender. Uh, I could have mentioned Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, whose great society and war on poverty programs, I'm sure were passed with good intent, but it sure looks like they had bad consequences for the family and for marriages, especially in minority communities. Uh, I think I may have mentioned in passing my... uh, Short acquaintanceship over a couple of years with Dick Gleason, who worked in the heart of the near south side, a young white man in the heart of the black community, and was the only white man as far as he knew at Malcolm X's funeral because he'd become friends with Malcolm, and Malcolm's widow uh, 
invited Dick to the funeral. That just gives you a little idea who he was. And Dick said, uh, you know, one of the results of these policies that Lyndon Johnson thought would help was uh, building high-rises, so many high-rises in a three-by-five block area near his neighborhood in the Southside Christian Center, uh, mostly single-parent families, uh, some of them single-parent because welfare made you get more money if you weren't married, uh, that in that three-by-five block area there were 5,000 teenagers. We've all seen movies about gangs in high-rises. It came from probably good intentions. But the difficulties that come from it. Many in Dick's community uh, called their congressman, Dawson, who nominated LBG for president at the Democratic Convention, convention after uh, he ran on his own after Kennedy's death. Uh, you know what they called him? Pharaoh. Because they knew that they were enslaved. So whether you're talking about Ronald Reagan and the Republicans, don't look for political saviors or LBJ political saviors or anybody today political saviors. It, it's not going to happen. That's why this text is in the Bible. To show us what Jesus does. And that if believers are looking to engage and influence others, local is a much better way. I mean, you need to vote wisely. You need to, in the short run, elections are just points in time. And yet they can have consequences. We need wisdom. But Peter's coaching us on how to behave where we live and to go beyond what's expected in ways that aren't flattery. flattery. To care about folks, to remind folks of their importance beyond sin and failure, that they're important and important to God. Because secondly, the eternal Son incarnate himself displays the true grace of God and his steps mark the way for those he shepherds. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this as a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For you were straying like sheep, but now, if you're a believer, you've come, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Much of the background uh, for Peter's words in today's text uh, appear to be from what, Steve, what you read for us as he led us uh, in uh, confession and absolution. Uh, it's just an amazing passage, and if you read our text for this morning and, and read first, read Isaiah 53, you'll go like, whoa. The Bible was really important to Peter, surprise, surprise. He wasn't just making this stuff up, so much so that by the Holy Spirit, it's the Bible. And much of the background is there, and it's deeply saddening, saddening how often uh, Christians, including their leaders, uh, too readily want to be identified uh, being like Jesus uh, as prophet or Jesus as priest and Jesus as king, but too rarely do we see prominently uh, that we're called to follow in his steps as the suffering servant. The call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective. This is uh, Wolf's commentary. Let me read you this statement. The call to follow the crucified Messiah 
was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familiar structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed a worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. If God himself has revealed himself in the person of his incarnate eternal son as a suffering servant, there is no higher form of leadership. Did you read the MLK Jr. quotation in your bulletin? In case you didn't, let me read it. Martin Luther King Jr. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block. And others consider it foolishness. But I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The suffering and agonizing moments through which I have passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. More than ever before, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. Powerful words. And as we begin a search for a senior pastor, uh, do we seek one who is more of a prophet? More of a priest? More of a king? The one who bears at least recognizably a lot of the attributes of a suffering servant willing to suffer, willing to take hits without having to take control. You fill out the rest of that. And search committee, I'm praying for you that you will as you put together and do the interviews uh, of pastors with the pastor profile. When you suffer for good, suffer for it and endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, Richard Wurmbrandt was a Lutheran pastor in Romania, I believe from a Jewish background uh, in the days of Ceausescu, spent two seven-year terms in the prisons. Had a friend in Miami, uh, an Air Force, uh, retired Air Force officer who arranged his flights when they let him out of Romania and, and came to the U.S., uh, started uh, Voice of the Martyrs, which is such a, a wonderful ministry of reminding here are Wurmbrand's words uh, from his book, Tortured for Christ. Uh, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everybody was happy. you got to love it if you love Jesus. He learned to find humor and joy in doing what he knew no authority on earth could stop us from doing and that God would raise up others in our place if we don't preach the gospel. Finally, and I need to be quick, and I don't want to be, but I'm going to be. 
We worship Christ Jesus for who he is and what he has done so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen to these words one more time. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A bishop of the church uh, number of years ago, wrote regarding most of us being more ready to receive the peace of Christ than the suffering, than to avoid suffering. And we like, he said, quote, we like better St. Peter's carnal advice to Christ, remember, to avoid suffering, Matthew 16, 22. Far be it from you, Lord, Jesus has said he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. This shall never happen to you. Now, we like that statement of Peter more than his apostolic doctrine teaching them that as Christ suffered, so likewise. His followers sometimes will find themselves sharing in his sufferings. I want us to end this morning by looking at what I believe to be the second and foundational example of these verses, not just uh, following his example, but the motivation and enabling new life uh, that brings not just forgiveness, but is the very foundation and new life that enables us to die to our sin. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Think about that. No rebellion against God. No betrayal. No missing the mark of of God's standards and, and God's instructions in the scripture. And as James says, James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle also his own body. And Peter says of Jesus, and no sin was found in his mouth. I can't say that. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We spent a number of Sundays looking at God's providence in Jacob and his son's lives and a couple of other texts. Uh, but here's the Son of God trusting in the providence of God. That those he's come to live among and save will judge unjustly but his father never will. And no matter what happens to me, this is what I've been called to. This is why I came. Jesus slipped into our world as a baby, and as he was seen, they took out the whips. But he trusted his father, Peter's Greek word for entrusting, is used in the Greek Old Testament of Isaiah for Messiah's delivering himself up to the sufferings and trusting himself to the Father. 
Oh, Peter. Peter had witnessed Jesus' sufferings. He'd seen Jesus' endurance on the cross. He'd heard him cry out in the midst of pain, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Peter says so much in this verse, it's hard to know what my heart and yours need the most. I encourage you to meditate on it. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took the penalty we deserved and suffered and died for any and all who will come to him. He forgives sins of anybody who will come to him. God can take care of predestination. He does. But any who will come and do, he saves. That's the word to us. Quit listening to God's words to himself and what he understands and listen to his words to you. Come. But his healing is not just forgiveness. In our old life from the flesh, we only ran away from God. Oh, we could pretend to go to religion. I mean, religion, have you figured this out yet? I hope it's not true for some of you this morning. Religion is the best place to hide from God. And preachers are in the worst danger. I mean, we say all the good stuff all the time. And we're wonderful because we say all the good stuff. No. We're in great danger if we say all the good stuff, but we don't believe it about ourselves. And if it doesn't cause us to be humble towards those who are around us. But God's laws and instructions repelled us. We were unwilling, unable to run to Him for new life. But now in Christ, we joyfully concur with the law of God in our hearts, for we know it's good for us and for our neighbors. By the way, if, if you joyfully concur knowing that the things of God are true and are the best for you and the best for the community, but you have a really hard time living it out, the Holy Spirit's already at work in your life. Because you don't joyfully concur that God's instructions are right without the Spirit of God beginning to draw you along on the path towards redemption and towards regeneration, new birth, and new life. So if you're struggling with some sins, but you know God's way is right, praise God and get on your knees and say, God, I needed you to die for me. I need your new life in me, and you've offered it. Why am I still trying to do this myself instead of finding my life in Christ? But now we're able to put our sins to death because we're willing to die again and again, hour by hour, to turn our back on our passions. We can't do it on our own, but with His life in me, you and I can. We can now live for righteousness. Finally, verse 25, for you were straying like sheep. Sheep may really like their shepherd, but they still stray. Oh, that looks like a nice little path. And off they go. But you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How much those words must have meant to Peter. Think of Peter's life and, then, and think of Jesus as his shepherd. He led him to fish for men. He shepherded his soul. He rebuked him with incredible words, get behind me, Satan, and yet he still loved him. When Peter was trying to come up with a better way, a better plan for Jesus' life, I have friends like that that are always trying to come up with a plan for my life. Sometimes they're right. But Jesus is never wrong. 
He woke Peter up again and again in shame in the Garden of Gethsemane. He forgave Peter's betrayal in the courtyard of the high priest during the trial. He called Peter to feed his sheep even as he was envying his fellow disciple John. This is Peter who wrote this book amazed at the reality that he's describing. My life is so insignificant compared to Peter's, but when I think about it, oh, how Jesus, since I became a believer, has been the overseer and shepherd of my soul. Oh, the messes that I got into that he's delivered me from. Oh, how he sustained me even as I pay the consequences for the ones he chose not to deliver me from in time as far as I see it. Have you entrusted your soul to him? Have you fallen on your face in your sin and your failure? Will you cry out to Jesus for the thousandth time or the first time? Lord Jesus, there is no better shepherd and overseer for my soul than you. This morning, I fall down and I honor you. And I don't want to disgrace you or degrace you. Because I can't see except by you. May you worship Jesus this morning more than anyone else because he is God come among us.